I feel like this is the first time in my whole life that I'm like the cool extroverted middleman because I'm introducing two of my friends who would not otherwise meet and I never get to be that person. I think it's bold of you to call yourself the cool extroverted person. Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) She came, she saw, she dragged. She conquered. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that, dragged back down into the introvert closet. (laughs) Yeah, look me in the eye and tell me you're extroverted. Oh my God, my video isn't working. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh no. Guys, it's so weird. It's like her video just cut out. It's weird. She couldn't do it. Listen, I I, don't, I I can't say having worked with Rowan before. Um, it is there's some strong energy in this in this this session. There's like some like welcome to my domain. Let's just like tea posing over here, ready to go. That's true. On one time on the internet, I come in pretty. I come in pretty quiet. I'm just like I'm here to talk about facts. I also know so little about the internet compared to. Oh, I would say any other topic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure I was put on one time on the internet just to be the person that's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Give me that info. The person is the most important person on any podcast, period. Mm -hmm. Harry, can you give us some of that sweet, sweet one time on the internet ASMR uplifting goodness? (laughs) (laughs) Look at you. Using your planner. I'm so proud of you. You're putting all the boxes in. You're checking all the all the tasks off. You're staying on track. You've used it seven days a week. Wow. Look at you. Commitment. Look at you. You know what? You deserve a treat. You deserve a treat for committing. You deserve a special Japanese pencil that you bought on Amazon for $6. It spirals so the, so the lead never is uneven. And if you didn't commit, you know what? You can treat yourself too. I mean, you you'll get you'll get like the big treat. You have to go and get like the little clicky mechanical pencil. They sell in the forty four pack, <laughs> but it's new. I need the version of this ASMR that's for people who were just trashed this week, and by people who were trash, I mean for me. I I need mm-hmm. uplifting ASMR for me. <laughs> oh, no. This is my. This is unfortunately going to be the new niche. I've I've, I've unfortunately settled oh, into. Oh, you carved that deep <laughs> out for yourself. It's because you have that supportive father energy. You just come in here with that. You know, I support you. You're doing your best, and I sense that your "I'm disappointed" voice is crushing. Mm. <laughs> it, it's oh, it bad. Would hurt. I, I I only take it out if I absolutely have to. It's bad. It's like a well. That's how you make it powerful. It's if it's constant, you're not going to need it. The other so a few months ago when my family was together, I have two nephews, and my mom needed to discipline one of my nephews, and so she used her loud voice, and all of her children froze in place as though we were the the four year old being disciplined. <laughs> so when used correctly, that voice will last forever. <laughs> no one is allowed to ever be disappointed in me because disappointment hurts so much more keenly than mm-hmm. anger. It's mm-hmm. like right for the jugular. I know that you could have streamed in your living room. I know you could have, but you're disappointing me by being in the closet. Of all the places you could have been, you know? Ooh. I'm still I still believe in you. You're the smartest person I know. But you're in the closet right now. <laughs> okay, first of all, all I heard of that was you're the smartest person I know. So mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> Listen, uh, 
Listen, I, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm used to having to compliment, compliment the two girls, and they immediately like throw themselves like, "Oh, I just don't do this." Or I'm like, "No, no, 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 no." I'm just mm-hmm. disappointed. And what's happened right now? You're doing great. Stop that. You're doing fine. Yep. I'm just disappointed. And I have to be it's just a little soft, gentle. My son gets the full disciplined voice. <laughs> mm, okay. Yep. <laughs> it, it is interesting the difference between I'm the youngest of five daughters, but my oldest sister has two sons. And watching my parents have to rewire their brain from having raised five daughters to interacting with two grandsons, truly one of my favorite parts of seeing all of them yeah like like <laughs> so, like i only have one son and it's just so like mind-blowing like the like the two girls they want to be your helper they want to be your friend he's just like i don't remember voting you in dad <laughs> oh no <laughs> no i never died and made you king but uh <laughs> hopefully it wasn't my brother <laughs> That was that was an option. That was an energy I could have had as a youth. Oh, he... you have no idea. Watching my nephews just immediate. My two-year-old nephew, almost two-year-old nephew, has mastered the side eye. Mm. If he's just unimpressed with you, you see it. It is a very clear side eye. He, he looks at you, <laughs> glares. And then just keeps on going. He think they they think they look so much scarier than they do. They 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 legit are just <laughs> He's like got the chubby cheeks, like full on like Anakin. <laughs> you don't understand my power. They're like glaring at you. Meanwhile, the, <laughs> we're, we're we're arguing over a chicken tender that fell on the floor, and you can't eat it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just like. <sighs> Yeah, they're plotting. They're plotting their revenge. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're just trying to keep them alive. You just. <laughs> That's all you're trying to do is keep them alive. All right. So normally we say we want to have the energy of a mediocre middle-aged white man. But you know what? In 2021, I'm going to go for the energy of a four-year-old belligerent boy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Side-eye chicken nuggets off the floor only <laughs> they 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 thrill at the challenge they, they're like little, the little billy goats at the zoo like they love mm-hmm. they love the smashing their heads into each other because they they don't want to win they want to be challenged and they want to be they like they don't want to win <laughs> they want you to lose partly that and i think and that they, is a very different energy i think mm-hmm. they really do like coming up against no I, I I think it's weird. I think they like knowing they're like, okay, mm-hmm. everything's exactly like I left it. I'm still I'm still the little the little, little guy on the totem pole. Until the I, I like I, I can't I would rue the day that my son comes up to me, he's like, Can I can you buy you know Warcraft for me? And I'm like <laughs> fine. That's not here right now. Bye. <laughs> like, I think he likes to know that I'm still like, mm-hmm. absolutely not. <laughs> Get Mm-mm. the heck out of here. Yeah. Look a small toddler in the eye and say no with anything less than a deadly serious face, and all you'll get in response is giggles. Yep, exactly. It's just the funniest thing in the world to them. (laughs) It's the funniest thing in the world to me. You know what? As the person with no kids or very little experience with children in this scenario, I'm still sitting here going... Harry told me I'm the smartest person he knows. <laughs> you just take that right to the bank. You can cash that mm-hmm. anywhere, all right? Oh, I'm going to bask in that compliment for a year, probably. You print that thing out, you take it to Baskin-Robbins, you get at least th- the big the big cup. The big, mm. large three-scooper. That's You special. know what? I'm going to do it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rowan Hall, and I am the smartest person Harry knows. <laughs> and I am Tracy Harrison. And I am a person that Harry knows. 
<laughs> we're bitter rivals for reasons <laughs> we can't discuss on air. We can't disclose why, but we are bitter rivals. <laughs> <laughs> And this is the Willing and Fable podcast. This is a podcast where two bitter rivals bring you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Rowan rewriting the canon of this podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can subscribe, leave us a review, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable. Check out the merch on our willingandfable.com site, or you can continue listening to our episodes. Truly, we're just happy to have you here with us. Last option, really quick, last critical option. Mm. You may also write every single place on the internet that I am the smartest person you know. That is also a form of support that we will accept. We will. We will. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So new friends or friends that are unfamiliar with this voice, we have a man on our podcast. He's a gentleman we really like. Uh, Harry, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, friends. You're, you're all new friends to me, so it, it's a pleasure. To, it's a pleasure to meet you. I, I'm Harry with the Harry Horror Show on Twitch. Um, it is a live streaming platform, and I get the, the privilege and the opportunity to stream true crime, debunk conspiracy theories, and explore the paranormal, the occult, and the things that go bump in the night, weeknights at nine. Um, and so I'm absolutely thrilled and honored to be here because we're going to be talking about something that, that absolutely gets me going in ways that... Usually only my viewers on weeknights get to see. (laughs) (laughs) Harry was recently partnered on Twitch. Harry, we're Mm -hmm. so heckin' proud of you. Um, And since I get to work with Harry for Pixel Circus's show one time on the internet on Twitch, Tracy and I thought we might cover our topic today, which I'm not yet going to reveal. And I said... But I know the guy. I know the one true mm-hmm. spooky crime guy. Mm-hmm. And so we locked Harry up in a... We locked um, him away. Put him in a cell. Never letting him yeah, out. Yeah, we locked him in a cell. We gave him dinosaur chicken nuggets that had been on the floor mm-hmm. and said, you have to be on our podcast now. I believe they're called Bronto Bites and Tyranitendies. But, you know... <laughs> Did you just school us into how to keep you mm-hmm. as our prisoner? I believe you des- you described my energy as as swirling dad energy, and that's with a lot of dad jokes. So this is just going to be a lot of off the cuff, al dente style. Will they stick to the wall or will they not? <laughs> um, just dad jokes, and okay. I-, I don't know how many of these I'm going to get shot through the editorial filter. It's true. I edit this. I can just mute him. I can just mute his entire audio. He could just not be here for this episode. I have the power. <laughs> That'd be funny, actually. Before we get into the fun of this episode, you guys all know that we geeked out pretty hard on the last episode because our spring sponsor for the podcast is Greenleaf Geek, run by the amazing Leah, who sells handmade and curated dice. She was kind enough to send us dice to play with, and they are stunning. They are hand-poured resin dice, and the ones she sent me are made to look like Labradorite stone. They have the slight green to gray marble pattern, and they're perfect for my newest half-orc character. I love these dice. No one else in my house is allowed to use them. They're mine. (laughs) (laughs) They are my lucky special dice now. And Leah has amazing dice on her website that can work for basically any character you want to play or any aesthetic that you live by. 
Like, I don't know, Rowan, maybe witchy, dark academia vibes. That's the only aesthetic there is. (laughs) So if you're like me and you try to match your dice to your campaign, check out Greenleaf Geek. You are going to hear us talk about all of her amazing work throughout the spring. And if you want to find Leah's handmade dice or one of her curated collections, you can go to greenleafgeek.com or on Twitter and Instagram. You can check out at greenleafgeek. She was kind enough to offer a coupon code to Willing and Fable listeners. It's Fable, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. We cannot say enough good things about Leah. She embodies um, all the best parts, I think, of the gaming community. Hands down. She's so supportive and passionate and... We're really excited to see what our Dice Goblin friends come home with. So if you are on our Discord or follow us on social media, please post the amazing things that you get from Greenleaf Geek. All right. A quick heads up before we get into today's episode. Our topic is the infamous Jack the Ripper, which you probably knew because you clicked on this episode. But still, we will be discussing (laughs) numerous sensitive subjects, including violence, murder, and sexual crimes. As always, listener discretion is advised. With that out of the way, hey, Rowan, why don't you get us started? So, Harry, we do this thing on our episodes where we create an original or retelling of a story to go along with the histories that we learn. So for today's episode, each of the three of us became experts in a portion of Jack the Ripper lore, Which means we're all going to be learning a little and um, being the smartest people that Harry knows about one small thing. Um, (laughs) And I have the pleasure of presenting this week's story. So, everybody ready? Mm -hmm. You're meant to feel lucky or even proud to live in the world's largest capital city, or so they say. But it's hard to feel proud of the thing that beats bloodies, starves, strangles, and grinds you into a slow death. You read a paper the other day. It was soaked through with mud and what you don't care to examine, but it claimed that the number of East End unfortunates was rising to 900,000. It was difficult to imagine what 900,000 of anything even looked like. But you knew how it felt. It felt like a dark maze of roads and narrow alleys, too few street lamps fighting too thick darkness. It was the pea soup fog mixing with the pungent odor of sweated labor and starvation as your nightcap for each evening. It sounded like immigrants shouting in accents and languages that never seemed to translate into comprehension, the unending and baffling hatred of the nearest person because their hair was darker or their pint was fuller. A swift right hook providing the instant gratification that a wistful look at the West End never seemed to grant. It was city police shouting at everything harmless just to appear busy and people dying in droves with no defense but luck. A cudgel, a knife, disease, or drink each exchanged as a compliment and insult both. Doctors that cost too much and lives worth too little. 900,000 people meant being ankle deep in shit from the moment you were born until the moment you were buried beneath it. 
There was an odor that numbed all other senses until the line between beast of burden and neighbor blurred into bafflement. Whitechapel meant selling your body for too long hours for too little pay. Docks, factories, shops, trades, the constant repair of shoes that were two decades too old and fabric that was too worn to protect against any element you'd ever encountered. The constant cold and ache, combined with water too foul to be drunk, meant every man, woman, and child subsisted off the alcohol they could afford. Beer, gin, the body-warming and insanity-producing methylated spirits. Women blamed at every turn for drunkenness that destroyed the home. But what home had they even to destroy? No money for meat, selling oneself for bread. You cannot undo what beauty was never done. You read through the article and think of the previous night you'd not made enough to afford a pallet to sleep. Not even one of the flea-infested straw flats two or three boarders would share. You'd hope to find a place in a four-penny coffin or strapped sitting to a pew, but to buy that right meant a long walk through the night's alleys, and it seemed a risk too great simply for a lie-down. So Whitechapel gave you a rope. Tied between floor and ceiling in a room so packed you were intimately familiar with no less than five strangers just from staggering to your hempen rest. You leaned as best you could on the frayed and swaying cable and as every citizen who lived in the East End could, you let the snores of inebriated strangers lull you into a wary half-sleep. 900,000 people meant no rest when surrounded by the wicked. You'd long ago learned there was always someone desperate enough to be wicked in Whitechapel. 900,000 people in Whitechapel, 15,000 of whom are homeless and unemployed, tending to children who won't survive past the age of five. The numbers, wet ink bleeding black into your hand while you read and dodge horses and tradesmen. There was nothing to the words but a few lines of print for an elite and distant class of people full of pity. But there never was anything to all of that news and knowledge, just a halfpenny paper that trafficked in humanity as calculations. Eleven women dead in the revolting murders of Whitechapel. So, you stride down the street, leaving the paper in a crumple on the cobblestones, stamping it out like a cinder as you pass. If you had any frame of reference, your frustration and fear would crystallize into an anesthetized math problem as well. Eleven down, 899,989 to go. But you haven't the ability to think that way because your life is no paper and your neighbors are no number. Instead, you pull your shawl close and try your best to appear tall and menacing. You are afraid, and so you must seem angry. That's the truth of Whitechapel, an ever-present fear no man can quantify. As always, coming in hot and heavy with the adjectives, which I love. Yeah, baby, just left, right, and center. Adjective, adjective, adjective. (laughs) Who needs a noun? That was awesome, though. I love how it put you right in the heart of Whitechapel and how you always hear it described as just this dirty, poor, sad place to be. 
Yeah, so I pulled a picture of Whitechapel. Um, it's usually called Whitechapel Slum. It is one of the most popular pictures that goes around when you search this topic, probably because it is the most clear mm-hmm. photograph. Um, Harry, do you want to describe what it looks like for our yeah, viewers? Absolutely. Or, uh, pardon me, for our listeners? <laughs> well, listen, when you when you said listener discretion advised, I'm like, something's not right with that. And because I'm always streaming, I was like, it's not viewer discretion. For the mm-hmm. podcast, of course it would be listener discretion. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you can look so, however so, you want on a podcast. That's the best part. I, I, I'm still <laughs> locked under the camera. I still keep looking at it. I can't stop. It's hypnotic. Um, so, so speaking of hypnotic, by the way, um, this picture, Whitechapel Slum, a couple things really stand out. One... Um, Narrow, narrow space, uh, crammed, teeming with people. The, the each each of the walls, it's, you're basically looking down an alley, uh, like a Victorian era alley. The, the the each side of the road slants inward. Along it, a black dividing line with with like a dark smearing stripe down the middle. You and I both know that human waste is congregates has filled that space up entirely. There, you have misery, defiance, anger. Questioning, suspicion, wariness, all of it is in one particular like panorama of humanity that this alleyway really seems to capture. It's it's fascinating. And your eyes are it's one of those weird photos where your eyes aren't drawn to the center, but to mm. the edges, which is poetic considering that everyone involved here would have been on the edges of society. Um so uh, it's it. I would I would a hundred percent recommend looking it up. By the way, yeah. dear podcast listener, ten and two on the wheel, driving your automobile <laughs> as you as you listen here, or your hands too wet with soap to use your phone. I would recommend looking at it later. It's a pretty interesting slice of life. Harry, you're hired. I know. I'm so glad you asked Harry to describe it because I would have been like, there are some women, and it's a black and white photo, and it's clearly old. Moving on. Like I would. <laughs> One of the reasons that I did pick this photograph is because excluding a few very small children, it is all women. Mm-hmm. Except for one man in in the center oh, left. Oh, that's true. There is one gentleman kind of far back there. So I will say it is almost all women. Yeah. And it's giving you a really clear picture of a of a variety of ages, women who are put together to various degrees. I think what strikes me the most is that because it's such a clear picture, the faces feel like they could be people you know. Yeah. yeah you know, I, that, that woman in the very front on the left with the face the most clear in the picture, I, I feel like I've walked past her on the street. I think what what pops out to me too is that every almost everyone in the picture is leaning on something. And that's that I've been up on my feet. I'm exhausted. If I don't have somewhere to be, I'm going to be leaning on something just to conserve what little energy I have. Um, it is it, – it, it I used to work in construction and there's this phrase, here I sit tired and dirty, trying to hide until 5.30 where you're just sitting there <laughs> waiting for the day to end just so you don't have to work anymore or don't – can get a little bit of rest. And that's what it reminds me of is just a belabored and beleaguered group taking any opportunity they can to get off their feet. The reason that I wanted you guys to describe this picture before I get into my next portion is I think that you guys, as well as myself when I was first learning about Whitechapel, fell into a trap that the news has been feeding all of us for over a century. So 
London's East End was truly, in some places, a dark slum that was ransacked by disease and crime. But remember this, quote, It should be remembered that many of the writers and journalists who portrayed it in this way had vested interests in so depicting it, be it to attract attention to the area's more unsavory aspects and locations in order to bring about social change, or simply because there was so little newspaper selling shock value in calling attention to the law-abiding, hard-working citizenry that also lived in the East End of London, and which may well have made up the majority of the local population. Of course, parts of the East End were, without a doubt, lawless ghettos where the people lived in appalling conditions. But this was also the case with the rest of London. Chelsea, Westminster, Lambeth, Marylebone, and even the City of London all had their enclaves that were as bad as, if not worse, than the East End slums. However, largely as a result of the huge amount of press coverage afforded the Jack the Ripper murders which did take place in one of the East End's most densely populated, crime-ridden, and vice-infested quarters, it is the reputation and appearance of the small section where the murders occurred that has, to an extent, become the most enduring image of the East End as a whole. Yes, Whitechapel had its slums, its no-go areas, and its criminal populace, but it also had some very respectable areas, and a large percentage of those who lived there were extremely hardworking and exceptionally law-abiding. And that's from jacktheripper.org. I was about to say, it, it reminds me a lot of the Kowloon Walled City. I, <gasps> yes! I, I, it, mm-hmm. it, it, this, this, this huge, densely packed block of humanity that from the outside in looks scary and menacing and full of criminals, but... From the inside out, everyone still has to sleep and eat and go to the dentist and do all of these things, and they make do in the chaos, creating order in the chaos, creating uh, a semblance of normality given exactly what was given. And so, like Whitechapel, well, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the papers are going to paint it as this this giant, like monstrous block with a monster inside, and it, it's all very scary from the outside. You can you can use your newspaper and 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 read with your half pennies worth of of, of paper and ink. But at the same time, for the folks living in there, it is navigating chaos as normally and as as, as sanely as one can expect to, which mm-hmm. humanity tends to do more often than I think we'd like. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tracy and I are both from outside Philadelphia, and at various points in our life, newspapers have tried to sensationalize parts of philadelphia as i very... lived in one of those parts of philadelphia i lived in a part of philadelphia where the first question i got asked from people is well have you ever been mugged <laughs> and so people's perception of that area of philly it, rightfully it is not the best area of philly but it's just like anything else like there's rules you know you know in that area of philly don't go grocery shopping at 11 o'clock at night when you're you know a, a woman alone Maybe don't do that anywhere, really. But really, truly. <laughs> don't be a woman I, alone, full stop. Don't be a woman alone. That's what I learned living in uh, North Philly. You know, it's it's just it's just so strange being being a dude where it's like I've never had to worry about that. It's, I've always been like, well, if someone's going to mug me, I'll say, look, I don't have anything. I'm too cheap. And like, hopefully they'll leave me alone. <laughs> like, it's just a whole different world of conversation, it seems like. Oh, but- yeah. <laughs> I think as a woman – you never don't have anything. Yeah. 
That's wow. That's really good. But there's never anything that people in that position won't take, I think, is kind of the or idea. Or take. Right. And I, I want us to also remember as we explore this, because truly, I didn't know. I was introduced to Jack the Ripper through movies, you know, like From Hell, the, the Johnny Depp movie, all these like really dramatic mm-hmm. pieces that even people during this time knew better, at least some of them. So on September 19th, 1888, at the absolute height of the Jack the Ripper scare, the vicar of St. Jude's Church on Commercial Street, Canon Samuel Barnett, wrote to the Times newspaper, quote, The greater part of Whitechapel is as orderly as any part of London, and the life of most of its inhabitants is more moral than that of many whose vices are hidden by greater wealth. It, it's difficult because we are about to dive into arguably one of the most famous crime sprees ever i think ever it's definitely Mm -hmm. up there but but i i have to remind myself as we do it that jack the ripper has been turned into the boogeyman and because he's been turned into the boogeyman we get this kind of kaleidoscope almost magical realism view of the world that he lived in and i think it is much scarier to see him as a normal human man who committed horrible human atrocities than you know chocolate syrup blood <laughs> and <laughs> but it's true obviously everything's more scary when it feels like it could happen to you that's why we've shifted from the ridiculous b movies of the 50s to the types of horror movies we have now that are psychological thrillers about real people it's one of those things to where I, I, I get the hesitation to not want to sensationalize the place. But I, I feel like sometimes with these stories, the place is almost a character too. And mm-hmm. I think it makes the victims all the stronger. That Whitechapel, I, I, I'm okay viewing Whitechapel as this maw that grinds people up in this poetic sense. Because it makes the people who live there and made a life for themselves all the stronger for it. Like, you know, these people didn't get chewed up and spit out. Up until the last moment there, they were rough and tumble and creating a life in an extremely caustic place that wanted to, you know, er erode them from existence. So part of me is like, yes, absolutely, let's play cautiously. Of course, things were were over-examined and over-stretched. But the other part of me is like, sure, you know, Thatcher era London was the exact same way. Seattle in the 1980s and King County. Mm. Yeah, these are places that are legendary in true crime because of just how how much of a place that they were. They were they were uh, fertile fields for rotten seeds, so to speak. So I think it was just it's one of those things where I'm I'm, okay, I'm kind of okay leaning into how gnarly of a backdrop this was because it certainly was in many respects. Right. Where the murders happened certainly was. Yeah. That seems to be the the understanding. There's this quote that I keep going back to that um, in reference to the Jack the Ripper killings, it's, quote, it became a concentrated reminder to the public conscience that nothing to be found in the East End should be tolerated in a Christian country. And I think that idea of... The people reading about Whitechapel as these Christians who are so separate from that world and Mm -hmm. who need to go in and save those people does in a lot of ways 
keep people from the fact that all of London had these issues. This was a very highly populated area of immigrants. It was very Mm, hard to be an immigrant in London. (laughs) And you see kind of, again, that storybook version of a lot of class struggles that lead to, or I should say are pointed out in horrific murders throughout history, as Harry said. So before I let you guys properly dive into the crimes, I want to talk about the news media Mm -hmm. at the time Mm -hmm. and how really Jack the Ripper exists in our consciousness today because of newspapers. (laughs) Yes. I'm so glad you're touching on this because I was just chatting with my sister about doing the story was like, why is it so popular? And why was it so popular then? And what we came to, and maybe you'll prove or disprove this theory. This is my theory going into it is that it's kind of like, the Mona Lisa, which when people say, why is the Mona Lisa so famous? It's kind of famous because it was famous. It was famous in its time. So it's famous now. There's more to it than that for the Mona Lisa. But I'm curious if the Jack the Ripper thing is similar. Yeah, I think there's an element to that always with things that become popular in the common lexicon. You want to be able to talk about it. You want to be in the in-group. And there's just that very human desire to want to know. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be left out of anything. And I think the newspapers of the time, specifically one that I'm about to get into, really tapped into that. So on January 17th, 1888, a new newspaper arrived on the scene, and it was just in time for Jack the Ripper. The Star, having realized that the coverage of the Whitechapel murders sold papers exceedingly well, almost entirely devoted itself to that coverage. In 1938, when this paper was celebrating its golden jubilee, Hmm. they published a story comparing London of that time to the London of 1888 during the time of the Ripper. Quote, London in 1888, a city comparatively of darkness, its streets ill-lighted by gas, and subject in winter to the midday darkness of fogs, which we called pea supers. This was written in when? 1938. 1938, before the great smog of London in the 50s, mm-hmm. back when pea supers were still very common things to happen. When they act, they're acting like, do you remember that time so far back, so far back when we were all living in darkness like they were still (laughs) that's why i pulled that quote almost exactly and put it in my story so you guys could kind of hear that drama and then realize where it came from (laughs) Mm. (laughs) it's almost like this idea of like we would say oh those were those were our salad days every londoner is like (laughs) just loving like the gloom and they're like those were our pea super days yes i do remember (laughs) With silver spoon and bowl, with memories so fond. (laughs) (laughs) It is dark, this idea of selling papers sort of over the bodies of numerous women who were murdered. But the star used those murders to attack authorities and reveal the horrible conditions of life in Whitechapel to a much larger, more affluent audience. And that's where you start to see both the good and the bad of publicizing the difficulties of living in Whitechapel. Thomas Power O'Connor 
was an Irishman, and he had the nickname Tay Pay, which was a joke on how he, as an Irishman, pronounced T.P. O'Connor. <laughs> he was a journalist and politician. He founded the paper with the editorial declaration right on its pages, quote, The rich, the privileged, the prosperous need no guardian or advocate. The poor, the weak, the beaten require the work and word of every humane man and woman to stand between them and the world. There's a plaque of his bust, and it's situated on the wall of Fleet Street, number 72. And you can go there and find that it reads, His pen could lay bare the bones of a book or the soul of a statesman in a few vivid lines. If that's not on your gravestone, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. Rowan, that is... If your pen cannot lay bare the bones of a book (laughs) or the soul of a stateman, what are you doing? First of all, I would like a crypt or even a mausoleum, and I'm just going to go uh, uh, lay bare the soul of a man, period. Okay, okay. You know? <laughs> Your pen could lay bare the bones of a man. Signed, sealed, delivered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's writing goals right there, though. Just, mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. to I want to finish a page. I want to write this episode, and I want to lay bare the soul of a book and the and the, the spirit of a statesman <laughs> by noon today. <laughs> by noon, optimistically. Yeah. There's a silent video clip of him, and it's just him out in his garden working on his typewriter, and then you'll get quotes on screen of him complaining about how he's the world's worst typist. So he's kind of this affluent guy who's trying to do good works, but has that, you know, like, humor about him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's both an immigrant and someone who did very well for himself, so he sits kind of in that pocket, and that will provide an excellent idea of the kind of people he hired for his paper. It was notoriously radical and liberal, um, right up until it folded in 1960. It advocated for the rights of poor workers and unions, and it is credited for the creation of political cartoons appearing in papers. And that idea quickly caught on. There's some debate about that, but the fact of the matter is they had some bangers of political cartoons. (laughs) (laughs) So the star called the Ripper murders a variety of names throughout that faithful autumn. Headlines cried, the Whitechapel horror, the Whitechapel tragedy, the revolting murder in Whitechapel, and it brought record sales. On November 10th, 1888, they printed Quote, the circulation of the star yesterday reached the enormous total of 298,800 copies. This number exceeds the total ever circulated in one day by this journal or any other evening paper. Without this paper and its aggressive criticism of the Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren and the sensationalization of the news at the time, I would say that the Jack the Ripper story would not be what it is today. I think that's totally fair. And thank you for answering my question of, hey, what makes it so famous? This newspaper. These really are these almost packaged stories. They put them together into one cohesive item. 
to sell mm-hmm. and to trade out. And and you never know what's going to be a classic. You never know what's going to be – and heavy air quotes for our podcast listeners, all of them, because this is only a podcast. Um, Whoa, only a podcast? This is the podcast. Only the oh, podcast. Shoot. That was big. <laughs> the only podcast. <laughs> Delete all the other ones off your phone. Now we'll be able to tell. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> but the, 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 these packaged ideas, these packaged um, um, stories here that that almost like they become a myth or something. Almost <laughs> like these these almost. connected stars create a constellation that we still look at years later and interpret it through our own cultural lens. Hmm. And I'll shut up about this. I just don't want anyone to think that I... A, think that this was the only paper reporting about this because it certainly wasn't, or that I am anti-news because, as evidenced by our podcast, I'm clearly not. I think that the news is one of the creations of humanity that has the most power to improve human lives as far as media goes. And I wanted to highlight this story because this man who had you know, that classic story of immigrating as an Irishman to London in a time in which that was difficult, to say the least, Mm -hmm. becoming a politician and then turning around and kind of going to the opposite side, becoming the news that criticizes politicians. I think that that is a story that not only adds to the mythology, but also explains it. It does. And it the fact that the story was so big then, it's so big now, just proves that true crime is not a fad, you know, that started with my favorite murder. It has been something people have loved for hundreds, thousands of years. I don't know. Maybe the ancient Egyptians were like, did you hear about this murder? Guaranteed. (laughs) (laughs) And we're still talking about King Tut to this day, dude. (laughs) It's true. It's true. We, we were fascinated by death, and this proves that this was that was true, even in the dark, grim ages of 1888 London that they pretend the they're soup. not in. All the pea <laughs> soup days. <laughs> so now that I've given this lead up to the Jack the Ripper murders and discussed not one single thing about them, Harry, will you just go in for us? <laughs> I will I will take this pea soup laden mantle and wear it and tell these stories here. Um, now I will say just just one more time for the folks in the back um, that that these stories are heart wrenching. They are difficult to listen to. Um, on the 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 buttons of the human mind, they may press a few. Uh, so. My hope is that you know you, you'll listen, but obviously I also understand too that that listener discretion is going to be advised. It's going to be something you're going to come into, and it, it might be a little darker than most things get um, on your average Monday when we're recording. And whatever day you listen to, because you know what, it's your podcast. You listen whenever you want to, whatever day it is. <laughs> it's probably one of the darkest things you're going to hear today. So, and since this is the only podcast. You know, if, no if you don't listen to this one, you'll just have to join us next week, and that's okay, too. You have no other <laughs> options. It's like, it's, it's, it's like the monolith from 2001 A Space Odyssey. It stands alone. <gasps> all of us all of us podcasters just hopping around with, with bones trying to figure out how to make this thing work, and it comes out. 
when it comes out. Rowan is overjoyed at the reference. <laughs> I love that for us. <laughs> uh, so, so back down to serious face for a moment here. Um, I'm going to start us off with a quote from the Jack the Ripper tour website. Um, for example, following the murder of Martha Tabram, the 7th August edition of the paper, The Star, continuing on from that line of thought, treated its readers to the following article. A woman, now lying unidentified at the mortuary, Whitechapel, was ferociously stabbed to death this morning, between two and four o'clock, on the landing of a stone staircase in George's building, Whitechapel. George's buildings are tenements, occupied by the poor laboring class. A lodger, going early to his work, found the body. Another lodger says the murder was not committed when he returned home about two o'clock. The woman was stabbed in twenty places, no weapon was found near her, and her murderer had left no trace. She is of middle age and height, has black hair and a large round face, and apparently belonged to the lowest class. The following evening's edition went into graphic detail about the injuries that the victim of the Whitechapel horror had sustained. The wounds in the body are frightful. There are about eight of them on the chest, inflicted in an almost circular form. While the probably fatal one, certainly much the largest and deepest of any, is under the heart. The wounds appear to be the result of sword or dagger thrust, rather than that of a knife. No arrest has yet been made. With that, and perhaps before, or maybe even after, Jack the Ripper's myth begins to grow. It spans time and place, but his hunting season and killing grounds, for as large as his legend is, are remarkably narrow and confined. The five canonical victims, Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly, were all murdered within two months' time and within a mile radius. We say they are canonical because we are sure as history will allow that they were all killed by the infamous Jack the Ripper. Now, the narrowness of range is strange enough, and the pace is faster than most. But it's the brutality of the crimes that's captured fascination more than almost anything else. Murders happened at a fast and furious place in the grindhouse that was Whitechapel. The less dead were seen as a nuisance to be scraped from the cobblestone rather than the legitimate tragedies that they were. But in a world of casual murder and vulnerable women, the canonical five stood out. Harry, you should be a newsman. You should. <laughs> Got a great storytelling voice. I mean, you are also kind of a newsman. I, I, it is a skill I've had to learn, unfortunately, by a lot of trial and error. And I'm nowhere near. <laughs> I, I want to. I want. I hope that time travel is invented. So, like, ten years from now, just just Giga Chad me can come up like you know nothing about newscasting, and I'm like I do know. You don't know anything about me. I am you. Boy. <laughs> well, there's always that news voice like, hello, here's the daily news. Ah, transatlanticism news here, coming to you live from WK344. I mean, you're, <laughs> I hate that. I hate the transatlantic <laughs> news voice. Because I get, I can I get, not because I love the way it sounds, but I can't get further than two sentences without messing something up and it ruins the flow. Try doing a podcast with a trained actor who can do basically any accent on command. How about hey. don't hype me up like that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll hype you up all day, every day. I'll do it. <laughs> all right. The bodies weren't just discarded. These young women were desecrated and defiled. A disturbing mixture of animal rage paired with clinically detached skill. How can we all know that they were tied to Jack the Ripper? 
Their throats would be slashed left to right, so blood flow would move away from the killer. The crimes were intensely sexual. The skirts would be raised and the body defiled, but not in the customary way our, body, our minds first jumped to. Rather than attack the outer, Jack cuts within, eyes set on internal organs, almost as if rather than attack the outer manifestation of femininity, he targets what it means to be a woman itself rather than lust. At a time when women's outer organs were referred to as her secret and her inner organs were a little understood mystery to most, what kind of monster removes and keeps a uterus as a trophy? He was a creature of frenzy and seething misogyny, first attacking Marianne Nichols on the 31st of August, 1888. She had no idea of knowing she'd be the herald of what was to come. So now it's my turn to jump in and tell you a little bit about the life of the first victim, Mary Ann Nichols. Born Mary Ann Walker on August 26, 1845, Mary was wed to William Nichols in 1864 when she was 18 years old. The couple had five children, but by 1880, their marital problems came to a head. The two separated due to disputed causes, with William later relocating with his four children to an address near Old Kent Road. Oh wow, I wonder how uncommon it was for the man to end up with the children at that time. I don't know for the time how common or uncommon it was, but for the women we're going to discuss today... I know! I have a story like that, too! It's a trend! I was deeply fascinated when looking into the lives of these women about how all of them started in such different places in their life mm -hmm. and how they all ended up in this one area of Whitechapel in 1888. That part and hasn't changed at all. Yeah, all of them were, were engaged in sex work. And to see, you know, you'll see some started on a farm. Some were happily married. Most weren't. Like, it just... And not to be too poetic about it, but the only pictures that exist of some of these women are the photographs of them after they've been murdered. And it was not uncommon for people to go their entire lives with no photos existing of them. But to see each of these women look like almost identical copies of one another because of mm -hmm. just how brutally they've been killed really puts a fine point on how Jack the Ripper viewed them and almost how society at large viewed them. You're absolutely right. That's actually, that's a problem I've run into doing the visual medium, doing the stream. I try to find a picture of every single victim that I can so they can get their time to be introduced and have the time for the our, the audience to get to know them. And it would stun you, even mm -hmm. in the 80s and the 90s, how there are some women who just no picture either was taken, surprising, probably not true, but no picture survived. The, the, mm. the, the rough and tumble movement down that, that, that marks all of these folks. That part of true crime has not changed from beginning to end. It is always the slippery slope. You never realize that you're in a survival situation until you are in the middle of it. You never realize how far you've slidden down until you're essentially the closing chapter in a true crime story. It really is just this fast it, – it, I kept getting echoes of Gary Ridgway, echoes of Ted Bundy, mm -hmm. echoes mm. of the Grim Sleeper when I was hearing the, the, this story here and, and, and the, the, the four other stories to come. It is just this – there's rhymes essentially that move through these stories. Okay, I'm not kidding. 
if I am horribly killed or die in a tragedy, knock on wood, you guys have to make sure a really good picture of me gets put in the news. Okay. We'll just make sure the news prints your entire headshot portfolio. Whatever, my dude. Just pick the one. <laughs> I, I call exclusive documentary narration rights and options to be the reenactment character of you with the wig. Absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say you'd have to fight me for it, but if you agree to do both, including the wig, I'm I'm all about that. Well, I could just see me being like in the claws. I already breathe into the mic heavily, so I'm going to be like <laughs> with the with the wig yeah, on. I'm the, already <laughs> the wig and, and the terrorize. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Mary Nichols has separated from her husband and her father accused William of leaving his daughter after he had conducted an affair with the nurse who attended the birth of their final child. Nichols himself, her husband, claimed the two separated because of Mary's drinking problems and that she left him to pursue sex work. As you do. According to Wikipedia, Nichols was legally required to support his estranged wife. He initially paid her a weekly allowance of five shillings until the spring of 1882 when he received word that she was working as a sex worker. Upon hearing this news, he ceased making these payments, causing Nichols to send summons via the Lambeth Union requesting the continuance of this weekly allowance. When parish authorities attempted to collect the maintenance money, William explained that his wife had deserted her family, leaving their children in his care, and was living with another man, earning money through sex work. As he was not legally required to support his wife if she was earning money through illicit means, Nichols no longer received any maintenance payments from her husband. Ugh, okay, this is a complicated scenario. There's so much going into it, but no! <laughs> I know. It, it, it's not going to get less frustrating as we explore. Oh, I know. I got some stories for y'all. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> That is just the start. So in April of 1888, the matron of Lambeth Workhouse, a Mrs. Fielder, found Nichols' employment as a domestic servant to a Mr. and Mrs. Cowdery in Wandsworth. Shortly after taking this employment, Nichols is known to have written a letter to her father describing her general contentment with the position, stating, I just write to say you will be glad to know I am settled in my new place and going on all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am in charge. It's a grand place inside, with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people, and I have not too much work to do. I hope you are all right and the boy has work. So goodbye for the present. From yours truly, Polly. Oh no, that's so happy. I know. However... Possibly because Nichols was suffering from alcoholism and her employers were teetotalers who were people who swore off alcohol, she left this employment after just three months of service, stealing clothing worth three pounds, ten shillings, and then she absconded from the premises. So she's not doing great. Talk about things you see in true crime a ton. It's, I was this close to climbing out, this close to getting away. I was a month away from being out. And again, mm-hmm. the, sometimes those folks who are right on the edge of fixing things are at their most vulnerable. Arguably the most vulnerable people who are, are, are those places between the zones, working mm-hmm. their way to get out or having just found themselves in 
like the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. I also don't think that we can emphasize enough how many people at this time period suffered from alcoholism. And so it was so much so that alcoholism was defined differently. Like what they might have seen as alcohol, what we might see as alcoholism today might not even have made the spectrum at that time. Right. And part of that is because in London, the drinking water was absolutely untenable. It caused one of the highest numbers of deaths in the city. And women in London at that time in the news were blamed more often for being alcoholics. And that blame was then transferred into breaking up the home more often. And I think that's because women were not supposed to drink and not supposed Mm -hmm. to ever leave the home. And so when we hear these stories, though I don't doubt that this woman suffered from alcoholism, I often wonder what it actually looked like. Right. Hmm. Right. And but you see that in her case of she was blamed. It's all her fault that the family is no longer together. No ifs, ands or buts about it. All her ex had to do was just ex- just say that she was a sex worker, and suddenly he has no responsibility for her. It's it, it really is this this idea that it almost makes you wonder if he was he was waiting to find out, waiting for the natural conclusion yes. of mm-hmm. of you know life catching up to her and her having to be forced to make you know whatever happened happened. Him he's just like oh yes, finally I can cut off those payments. Done. Easy peasy. I just picture this very cynical man just just watching and waiting for any excuse to cut those payments mm-hmm. off. Oh, absolutely. And can we touch on the fact that he had an affair with the nurse who helped her give birth to their child, the, their final, the last child that they had together? Oh. That's just, that is extra level of creepy. <laughs> That's particularly rude. It just is. Yeah. That's rude. Go somewhere else. You cheating bastard. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. My cheating was understandable, but what you did, no way. <laughs> Just awful. I know. It's so hypocritical. Oh, I'm going to get too fired up about it. It's so hypocritical. Oh, it, this is only the first yes. victim. <laughs> so it's 1888, and now we're at the night of her murder, where she was seen by the deputy lodging housekeeper who asked her for the four pence required for her bed. When Nichols replied that she did not have the money, as she was known to spend most of her money on alcohol by this point, she was ordered to leave the premises. Unconcerned, Nichols was said to have motioned to her new black velvet bonnet, replying, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. Then she left the lodging house with the likely intention of earning the money to pay for a bed via sex work. Her body would be found at 3.40 a.m. that same night. She'd be discovered 30 minutes after her death. How do you possibly know? Her hand, still clutching a gate, was warm. The metal it was holding on to still maintained some of her body heat. Her legs, still warm as well. The absolutely despicable way her body would be found would serve almost as the model of and the archetype of what was to come. Her abdomen would be cut down to the genital level. Her throat was slit left to right, and her killer was nowhere to be seen and left no trace of himself. A little over a week later, the Ripper would strike again. Annie Chapman would be discovered next, on the 8th of September, at the crack of dawn. Annie Chapman was born Eliza Ann Smith in Paddington on September 25, 1840. She was the first of five children, and according to her brother, quote, 
first took a drink when she was quite young. Contemporary accounts describe Annie Chapman as an intelligent and sociable woman with a weakness for alcohol, particularly rum. An acquaintance described Chapman at the inquest into her murder as being, quote, very civil and industrious when sober, before noting, I have often seen her the worse for drink. Chapman was five feet in height and had blue eyes and wavy dark brown hair, leading acquaintances to give her the nickname Dark Annie. Oh no, I'm five feet in height and I have dark wavy hair. <laughs> All right, I just, uh... It's, it's over for you, hon. Yeah, that's it. Oosh, let's hope Jack the Ripper's ghost isn't around. <laughs> <laughs> and got him out alive in 1888 in uh, Whitechapel, huh? <laughs> Already, though, we are seeing the similarities between these two women, and mm-hmm. we'll continue to see them, unfortunately, as we go on. But Annie married James Chapman in 1869, and by 1880, the couple had three children, Emily Ruth, Annie Georgina, and John Alfred. Their son was born with some physical issues, and this was likely caused by Annie's drinking. And this pushed her to swear off alcohol for a time. Eventually, they had to put their son in a home uh, to receive special care due to his difficulties. And then to add to that horror, one year later, their 12-year-old daughter, Emily, passed away from meningitis. And the life expectancy on children at this time, particularly in this area, was also very low. Right. The tragedy sent both of the parents into a spiral of heavy drinking, and by 1884, the couple agreed to split up their marriage. Following that separation, Annie Chapman relocated to Whitechapel, primarily living upon the weekly allowance of 10 shillings from her husband. Over the following years, she resided in common lodging houses in both Whitechapel and Spitalfields. However, in 1886, Her weekly payments stopped, and she learned that her ex-husband had passed away from alcohol-related causes. She made her money through crocheting decorative items, selling flowers, and occasional sex work. Similar to Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman was last seen, most likely leaving the lodging house to make money for her bed through sex work. Her body was found shortly after 6 a.m. the next morning. Her body is unfortunately where things escalate. Any sexual crime escalates, and hers would not be the exception to that rule. Dr. Phillips, the coroner at the time, was able to pretty easily establish a link between her murder and the murder of Marianne Nichols. She'd suffered two deep slashing wounds to the throat, the spatter reaching 18 inches up onto the wall. Oh my god. What? Mm Mm-hmm. That's so brutal. Mm Mm-hmm. It gets worse. They were able to determine the blade size and cut was the same. But what makes this particular murder so different, hers would be the body with the uterus taken, a bizarre trophy that defies explanation. Elizabeth Stry would be found deceased almost a month later, at the end of September. It's just such a specific trophy to take from your kill. I mean, Freud would have a field day. It's just... You have to have a certain knowledge of anatomy in my opinion, to even know to take that. And that's one of the reasons why surgeons or people in the medical field or students were considered as suspects for Jack the Ripper because there was no common knowledge of organs for the average Mm -hmm. bear at this time. 
That's a really good point because I, 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 I close my eyes and I see this character as being someone who's attacking like womanhood itself. Right. Because absolutely. like that, like that is it's involved in the reproductive process, but it's not a sexual organ at all. So mm-hmm. I, I, I can't imagine anyone doing it in an act of, of lust. This is this is anger and a specific targeted anger done. It has to be, I would think, by a medical professional because your average lay person is like, you're the rest. No, I, I, no, I prefer Agus sandwich if you ask me. Like he's going to think that like, you're talking about some, some French dish. Uh, I, I can't think of anyone really understanding, you know, enough to do this kind of damage unless they had specific training and could specifically act on the inner turmoil in a way that 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 in turn happened i mean ask anyone on the street today to point out where a uterus is on an anatomy map and half the people won't have any idea well and so many medical problems are caused by the wandering uterus don't you know oh that that newfangled disease hysteria is that what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, there are a lot of theories that this is a revenge-based killing specifically because of the attacks on women's organs. It has very it, – it screams issues with a mother because the uterus is so associated with motherhood. It feels like it could be tied to that. Or a sexual partner. Mm. The the arc of it, I mean, it, this this comment will only make sense at the end, but the escalating arc to me shows that it's it's working towards something. It's it's either mm-hmm. reliving something or reenacting something that's that's very much designed to end at a point. In fact, I mean, I, I would almost say, listener, keep that in mind that we're building towards something, that we're adding components to the stage play and heavy air quotes here. We're adding pieces to this tableau. Every time he strikes, he's increasing what he does. He's, he's adding mm-hmm. to it um, in a way that suggests he's building towards a very specific vision and maybe even a specific person. Maybe our last victim is somebody he did know and it was revenge killing in that regard. There are some theories about that. Yeah, it'll make more sense later. I always have to remind myself learning about this that we are in a time where we have photographs and we're seeing Mm -hmm. the beginning of forensics. You know, the police are looking at these wounds and saying, oh, it's it's the same weapon. But we're also in a time period in which medical science was filled with lobotomies and there were no single use needles and There were no blood transfusions. So the horror that we inherently envision from medicine at that time is then translated into the alleys of London. Mm. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, too, where even even if we were to leave behind science and the technical aspect. Science is left. No technical. Let's go. <laughs> in a scienceless universe where it's all procedure and red tape. Um, there is a lot of bureaucracy to police work. There is a lot of form and best practice that has had to mm-hmm. have been learned through trial and error and then trial and error literally. Um, O.J. Simpson is the one that almost every criminology student in the audience would recognize as being um, – the absolute biggest case of trial and error period where people were walking through the crime scene, moving oh. blankets, putting blankets on top of victims. Mm. We are going to get heated about what the cops did in this story in case anybody wanted another look at the future. <laughs> yes. Your yes. girl's going to get mad. 
before we get Rowan too mad, let's talk about the life of Elizabeth Stride. Stride was born Elizabeth Gustav daughter on November 27th, 1843, in a rural village in Sweden. She grew up on the farm, raised in the Lutheran faith. She relocated to London in 1866, and she told acquaintances two different reasons for this. One was to work as the domestic servant of a gentleman who lived near Hyde Park. The other was because she had visited relatives in London before choosing to remain in England. Sorry, are we saying a gentleman in air quotes like a gentleman caller or like what's, I what's going on there? I think you'll see that a lot of what Elizabeth said could be stretched to whatever she wanted it to mean in the moment. So I can't oh. confirm if this gentleman was real, if he was a gentleman caller, if he was an actual gentleman who was her BFF. Truly, I don't know. When in doubt, assume a rapscallion. Assume a not-so-gentlemanly gentleman until proven otherwise in a court of gentlemanhood. Wow, you just went for that 25-cent word, okay? <laughs> when in doubt, rapscallion it out. When in doubt. So, for whatever reason, she came to London. She arrived, and she used the money she inherited from her mother's death to get from Sweden to London. Then, she learned English and Yiddish after arriving. On March 7th, 1869, Elizabeth Gustav Daughter married John Thomas Stride, a ship's carpenter from Sheerness who was 22 years her senior. The two ran a coffee shop together until it was sold in 1874, likely due to financial difficulties. The couple separated shortly after this, and Stride entered the workhouse in 1877. Her ex-husband died in October of 1884 from tuberculosis. Although, Stride often told an exceptional tale of her husband and two of their children dying on a ship while she clung to the mast. She claimed another victim kicked her in the head, and that caused her to develop a stutter. You know what, girl? Your life is hard. Tell your story that way. Fine. Right? (laughs) (laughs) From 1885 until her death, she lived much of the time with local dock laborer Michael Kidney. Although the two had a very tumultuous relationship and would often separate for varying periods of time. In April of 1887, Stride filed a formal assault charge against Kidney, although she failed to pursue this charge in court and the case was discharged. In addition to sex work, Stride occasionally earned income from sewing and house cleaning. This woman is fascinating. First yeah. of all, she likely learned Yiddish because she was living in a place close to the Jewish community, likely mm-hmm. because she was also an immigrant to groups in London who were not accepted because racism. And mm-hmm. she had a stutter and invented a story to go along with it. And then she actually tried to file assault charges in 1887? Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Yeah. She's so fascinating. And, I, and the name Kidney stands out to me. I think it's – I think I would go so far as to say is that the, kill, the killer knew this young woman. Um, no, 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 no. I don't want that to be true. Oh, no. What's better? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's any better or worse to say the killer knew her. I, I, either the viewers, listeners are going to think that I'm reaching as tall as I can, like there's a, a shelf, something at the top of the shelf, 
or it's 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 there's a, a piece of it too. It's like there's something there to it because it's either a coincidence, a tremendous coincidence, consider what's going to happen later this oh, evening no. that we're going to be talking about, or it's all on purpose. It's all intentional. I have to cover that later. Just pin that, everyone. Mm-hmm. We're we're likely going to cover that in our second part. Spoiler alert: There's going to be multiple parts. Multiple parts. Multiple parts. We're giving you all the information. The willing and fable cinematic universe. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So following an argument with Kidney, Stride left to stay at a lodging house where she performed cleaning duties both at the house and for locals. According to Wikipedia, at 12.35 a.m., Constable William Smith saw Stride with a man wearing a hard felt hat standing opposite the International Working Men's Educational Club. Having no reason to feel suspicious, Smith continued on his beat. Between 12.35 a.m. and 12.45 a.m., dock worker James Brown saw a woman he believed to be Stride standing with her back against a wall at the corner of Burner Street speaking with a man of average build in a long black coat. Brown heard Stride say, No, not tonight, some other night. Her body was discovered at 1 a.m. that same night. How and where her body was discovered makes all the difference. She would be discovered by at around 1 a.m., 15 minutes after the last witness deciding, by Louis Dimeschutz. He was the steward of the Working Men's Educational Club, and he almost, most likely, walked onto the scene of desecration. <gasps> no, her neck was what? cut deeply. And it looked, forensically speaking, as if she had been grabbed from behind by her scarf, yanked to the ground, been held astride, and had her neck sliced, had her throat cut. Now, he didn't walk in in time to save her or to catch her, uh, catch her killer in the act. But what I believe sincerely happened is that Jack the Ripper was in the middle of desecrating her body, adding to this tableau. Because her throat is the only thing that was cut. She was yanked to the ground by her scarf, throat slit, killed. But he stumbles in and discovers this before he's able to complete whatever he had intended that evening. And we're led to believe this is the cause of the double event because he didn't get all that he wanted, correct? Exactly. So you can almost imagine now. Jack the Ripper, this faceless, menacing character, storming across the the, the cobblestones through alleys and and, and back streets there, furious and unfulfilled, looking desperately now for someone to ritualistically take the place of this crime interrupted. Now, we have no way of knowing for certain, but that to me makes the most sense. The part that kills me is he was in full berserker mode. And people do not start there. No. So there, there is something. There is the, you know, childhood story that we can't get because history won't allow us. The burning buildings, the drowning cats, I don't know, the previous murders, sexual assaults that we will never know. Yeah. Because we only get this snapshot of him in horrifying berserker mode. And there's and there's this so many of these stories. It is escalation. And there is usually one precipitating murder that is, in heavy air quotes, accidental. 
Whether they all are accidental mm-hmm. or the killer is too ashamed of the, the early first fumbling steps uh, to oh. ever admit that it was in, on purpose. I do headcanon like to picture perhaps uh, a, this escalating trend of violence and violence and violence. And then it precipitates into a murder. He never gets caught. He's emboldened. And this begins. Mm, I wonder how many crimes he committed that were not as horrific. You know, people found the victim, but they didn't report on it quite, quite to this extent because people died in that time. And it's it, it, in a world where you're having to endure all of these other things. I, I almost wonder if the line as to what was reported and what wasn't didn't shift. And and mm. the judgment call people had to make um, back then wasn't dramatically different. Um, there's a lot of things weighing out who's going to believe a sex worker, all of the usual stuff, and victim blaming that gets associated even today when we have victims from marginalized communities come forward. I can only imagine back then – when most of these law enforcement officers were, to be frank, almost entirely untrained and were there by political appointment, um, how much of how, how much were they actually going to listen? How much were they going to really investigate until it became a newspaper issue and they couldn't ignore it? <sighs> a frustrating story and a frustrating take, I think. <laughs> it's also – I'm really glad that you're on for this episode because you have such a breadth of true crime knowledge that you have a perspective on it that – I just don't have the information to have. And it's really helpful, I think, keeping this in mind and keeping him from becoming a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally yeah, he, agree. He's, he's an entry-level boogeyman. Once you've, once you've, I guess, everything that, that is, in air quotes, so unique about Jack really is just because he's unsolved. Uh, he he gets to hide in the shadows and keep this myth around him when really what he does is very physical and very unfortunately human and largely unremarkable you know it's he he's he's not some some mythical mastermind no there are definitely f- there are definitely far far more horrible frightening disgusting terrible killers that are ex- just so much less infamous. I mean, how many people really know who the Candyman is? That's true. But the more you get into it, it's like, ooh. Harry and I both raise our hands like, They did. Hi. They, did, they, did, they, did. <laughs> they both were like, ah, yes, yes. <laughs> we know him well. <laughs> All right. Who's our next victim? Well, the, the timing of this is extremely important because he she's discovered around 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, about 10 to 15 minutes after the meeting at the, the, the International Working Men's Educational Club had let out. So you can always picture um, – like a modern day, like a you know a workshop with the, with the Krispy Kreme donuts, and everyone's like, okay, see you next meeting. Everyone leaves. She's left against the side of the building. Gets yanked back. Gets attacked. Unable to finish. He's t- cast into the darkness where Catherine Eddowes would be discovered. Not forty five minutes later. A very fast, almost uh, a shark like burst of speed. Yeah. That's a really fast turnaround. Catherine Eddowes, also known as Kate Conway and Kate Kelly, after her two successive common-law husbands, was born in Graisley Green, Wolverhampton, on April 14, 1842. Only 15 years later, she became an orphan and was sent to a workhouse. Her aunt eventually found employment for her, but she soon lost that job, likely after being caught stealing. Next, she moved to Birmingham, and while residing there, she began a relationship with former soldier Thomas Conway, with whom she had two children. 
Eddowes had the initials TC tattooed in blue ink on her left forearm, which I think is a really particularly humanizing detail. Mm-hmm. And a unique one. Yeah, you don't hear a lot about tattoos on people from that time unless they're sailors, to be frank. Mm -hmm. Her third child was born after they moved to London in 1868. Eddowes was five feet tall with dark auburn hair and hazel eyes. Watch out, Tracy. All of these women are my height with dark hair and green or blue eyes. I really should be uh, a little more afraid, huh? All of these women were roughly the same age with very similar appearances. M O. <laughs> Friends described her as a very jolly woman always singing and an intelligent and scholarly individual but possessed a fierce temper. While in London, Eddowes took to drinking and she eventually left her family in 1880. To avoid contact with her former partner, Conway drew his army pension under the assumed name of Quinn and kept their son's addresses secret from her, effectively cutting Eddowes off from her own children. By the following year, Eddowes was living with a new partner, John Kelly, at Cooney's Common Lodging House and began sex work in order to earn money for rent. In the early afternoon of September 29th, Eddowes told Kelly she would leave to try to get some money from her daughter, Annie Phillips, who was married to a gunmaker. With money from pawning his boots, a barefooted Kelly took a bed at the lodging house just after 8 p.m. and, according to the deputy keeper, remained there all night. At 8.30 p.m., on Saturday, September 29th, Eddowes was found lying drunk in the road on Aldgate High Street by Constable Louis Robinson. She was taken into custody and then to Bishopsgate Police Station, where she was detained, given the name Nothing, until she was sober enough to leave at 1 a.m. in the morning of September 30th. She had no way of knowing that she was being released into a killing field that cold evening. She was last seen alive at 1.35 a.m. that morning, and her body was found only 10 minutes later at 1.45 a.m. What I'm about to read to you comes from the post-mortem records of police surgeon Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown. It is unimaginable to me that what I'm about to read to you could have taken place over the course of 10 minutes or less. I'm going to warn you again, listener discretion is advised. This is direct from a Victorian-era police report. The body was on its back. The head turned to left shoulder. The arms by the side of the body as if they'd fallen there. Both palms upward, the fingers slightly bent, a thimble lying off the finger on the right side, the clothes, skirts, drawn up above the abdomen. The thighs were naked. Left leg extended in a line with the body. The abdomen was exposed, right leg bent at the thigh and knee. The bonnet was at the back of the head. Great disfigurement of the face. The throat cut. Across below the throat was a neckerchief. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. They were smeared over with feculent material. A piece of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm, apparently by design. The lobe and oracle of the right ear were cut obliquely through. The body was quite warm. No death stiffening had taken place. She must have been dead most likely within the half hour. The report continues. And this time, from the morgue. After washing the left hand carefully, a bruise the size of a sixpence 
Reason and red was discovered in the back of the left hand between the thumb and first finger. A few small bruises on right or shin of order date, the hands and arms bronzed. The cause of death was hemorrhage from the left common carotid artery. The death was immediate and the mutilations were inflicted after death. There would not be much blood on the murderer. The cut was made by someone on the right side of the body kneeling below the middle. The peritoneal lining was cut through on the left side and the left kidney carefully taken out and removed. I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs and the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. The parts would have been no use for any professional purpose. It required a great deal of knowledge to have removed the kidney and to know where it was placed. Such a knowledge might be possessed by one in the habit of cutting up animals. I think the perpetrator of this act had sufficient time. It would have taken but five minutes. I believe it was the act of one person. Oh, my God. I don't have words. Rowan? I I just keep thinking about, ever since I read it, that when she was detained for being drunk, she was given the name nothing. Either she was given it or that's what she told them. I think it's unclear. But to be referred to as nothing... Well, nothing is, is double, by the way. Nothing strips you as an item and an item, an item that nobody cares to know where it came from. No mm-hmm. one would be at least we don't care to know who you are. Nothing also says that you're just a piece of meat. So it's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. It's a huge distinction. The fact that they gave that to her or she chose it, either way, just to have that be the last thing before... Ugh. And I hate to say this, but it does come as good news that she was dead before he had the same thought hacking her up it's only in true crime when you feel a sense of relief at hearing they were dead and then you know mutilations occur because it could be worse it could have been the other way around and oh i still think that the kidney was taken as a shot at her at the first victim's boyfriend mr kidney it's just too much of a weird coincidence for me. And that's where I'm, I'm feeling a little conspiratorial. I feel like he might have might have been a jilted lover. She went with this kidney gentleman instead. And in doing so, he was, you know, essentially took a bit of poetic license and took the kidney with him. Do you think that if this was someone with medical knowledge, it could also be a shot at the fact that all of the women had been found in a state of drunkenness or were known to be alcoholics? Ooh, I don't know if enough would have been known about the kidney at the time to attribute alcoholism to kidney abuse. Oh, have I got some information for you, my Ooh. friends. Ooh. So I'm not going to give it away because we're just going to we're just going to sit in a minute with Catherine before we kind of go into the information that I have. But I will say they absolutely knew that alcoholism affected kidneys. Well, and go. that could be used as a way to identify or at least link organs with people. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I almost I almost like that this that this guy is maybe had some sort of weird interaction with an alcoholic and is is taking the kidneys and taking the uterus as like independent pieces of a larger disgustingly perverted statement. Listen. I still maintain, I feel like there's mommy issues here. I think between between the uterus 
and the alcoholism and it seems like the lack of any sexual pleasure from Jack or whoever the killer was. I'm I'm team. I think it was mommy issues. I do appreciate that so far none of the three of us have gone down the this psychopath route because calling someone a psychopath is such a a great way to other them to make murder and horrible crime this distant Mm -hmm. only for those people kind of thing and because mommy issues are just so normal they're just so normal mommy issues are normal serial killing isn't but a quick uh psychological fact so the term psychopath and sociopath one do refer to the same thing. However, in the most recent edition of the DSM, the DSM-5, it is no longer the term used. The term used to describe someone who we might have called a sociopath or psychopath is now someone with antisocial personality disorder, so ASPD. Sometimes I just tee up the ball and you just home run it right out of the park with those (laughs) psychology facts. I'm very passionate about correctly identifying and referring to people's um, mental states, mental disorders, Mental health, it's something I I talk about a lot on the podcast, but it's really important for people to know that if you call someone a psychopath, that's not a medical term anymore. It is a term we use colloquially, but it's not a medical term. Also, if you call someone antisocial, technically what you mean is asocial, but I'm not going to be that friend that points it out because then you're not going to invite me to parties anymore. <laughs> um, you're invited to parties and just chef's kiss on the facts, my darling. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That, that that invitation to the parties can always be revoked if we whip out true crime knowledge, though. Always, it's a, it's an easy way to get out. Not the willing and fable party. That's no, true. No, the willing and fable party is all true crime all the time. That's true. <laughs> so I believe we have one more unfortunate Jack the Ripper canonical five victim. We do. Uh, Mary Jane Kelly would be the last to die of the canonical five, and hers. To that earlier point, I truly believe represents the, the the totality of the arc. Whatever Jack was trying to say, if he was trying to say anything, is there. It was it, it sits with Mary Jane Kelly, and she ends up becoming the, this this unfortunate last victim who did not did, did nothing to deserve being some sort of manifesto piece uh, for for you know a serial killer, but nonetheless. That's where we find ourselves in the story with the final canonical victim. Mary Jane Kelly's origins are mostly unknown, and we only know what others claim she told them during her life. According to a man she lived with prior to her death, she claimed she was born in Limerick, Ireland, around 1863, and moved to Wales as a child. Kelly has been variously reported as being a blonde or a redhead, whereas her nickname Black Mary suggests a dark brunette. Her reported eye color was blue. To some, Kelly was known as Fair Emma, although it is unclear whether this reference applied to her hair color, her skin color, her beauty, or whatever other personal qualities she may have possessed. She was a just and reasonable woman, so we changed her first name and called her Fair. (laughs) I mean, at this point, she's Mary Jane Kelly, Black Mary, Fair Emma. Wow, sure. Pers- uh, a, a woman has many, many faces, a, a person of many hats. A girl has no name. <laughs> That's the quote I was looking for. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly was approximately 16 in 1879 when she reportedly married a coal miner named Davis or Davies, 
who was killed two or three years later in a mining explosion. It was after this that she supposedly moved in with a cousin in Cardiff and began sex work. Though she was never arrested for sex work there, or at least no records survived to indicate she was ever charged with the act. In 1885, Kelly briefly resided with a Mrs. Buki in lodgings located near the London Docks North Quay in East End. In the brief period of time she lodged with Buki, the two were known to have visited the home of a French lady living in Knightsbridge to demand the return of a box of expensive dresses belonging to Kelly. This information suggests Kelly's descent into East End life was markedly rapid and may have been influenced by her efforts to avoid retribution from a procurer she worked for as a sex worker. It is also believed to be at this stage in her life when Kelly began drinking heavily, a habit she maintained until her death. In early 1888, Kelly and Barnett moved into 13 Miller's Court, a small, sparsely furnished single room at the back of 26 Dorset Street, Spitalfields. Number 13 Miller's Court was a single 12-foot square room with a bed, three tables, and a chair. Above the fireplace hung the print of The Fisherman's Widow, and a small tin bath was beneath the bed. One day, Kelly had lost her door key and claimed she broke open the window in order to get inside. A neighbor claimed she broke it in a drunken stupor. Regardless, the window was not patched and a man's jacket was frequently used as a curtain. Barnett lost his employment as a fish porter in July 1888, reportedly due to committing theft, and as a result, Kelly once again resorted to sex work. Elizabeth Pratter, who resided in the room directly above Kelly's, and Sarah Lewis, who slept at number 2 Miller's Court on November 8th and 9th, both reported hearing a faint cry of murder between 3.30 a.m. and 4 a.m., but did not react because they reported that it was common to hear such cries in the East End. Should cry fire. Yeah. A fact all women know, and apparently not a lot of men do. You should cry fire when you're in trouble. Really? The yeah. More, the more you know. Oh. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. <laughs> If you're a woman and you cry for help, people won't respond. But if you cry fire, people will run to see if they can do anything. That's very disheartening and also mm-hmm. very interesting. Sad, but it's, it's it's interesting. It's sad and interesting at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's a fact that every woman I've ever met known, and I don't think any man I've ever met has known. No, I've never met a single man who just knew it. Well, I will keep this knowledge and I will pass it on to my two daughters. And mm-hmm. that way, um, uh, they could pass it on to men who have no, no idea in their life. <laughs> we will share it with all the men. So on the morning of November 9th, 1888, Kelly's landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, Thomas Boyer, to collect the rent. Kelly was six weeks behind on her payments, owing 29 shillings. Shortly after 10.45 a.m., Boyer knocked on the door but received no response. He then looked inside the keyhole but could not see anybody in the room. Pushing aside the clothes used to plug the broken window pane, Boyer peered inside the room, discovering Kelly's extensively mutilated corpse lying on the bed. She is believed to have died between three and nine hours before the discovery of her body. She was found in a locked room first time that it ever happened. She was found splayed and displayed. The first time that it ever happened. Pieces of her face were missing entirely. Her organs would be removed and displayed around her. Her heart this time would be <gasps> missing. Oh. 
I look at the picture, the only existing picture of this crime scene. It's brutal. I cannot see where the wet fabric begins and the body ends. It is just a crime of absolute desolation. And it is a crime that is the arc, the finality of Jack the Ripper's killing spree. There are others, in fact, four that could be likely candidates. But of the canonical five, she would represent the climax of his rageful arc. Speculation pairs four additional victims to him, but these past five represent the best estimation as to his probable killings. Because his identity still is unknown, we can only guess as to his motivation, only speculate about his views of the victims, and barely fathom what dark thrills he derived from the insanity he inflicted in those early, foggy London hours. Many of these questions we ask now are being asked by bystanders, friends, neighbors, family of the victims at the time. There were also questions asked by the investigators at the time, because the hunt for Jack would be an essential element of his larger myth. I pulled up a map, and it marks the canonical five as well as some, though not all, of his other estimated victims. And I just wanted to show it to you guys so you could kind of describe for listeners what his hunting grounds kind of looked like. It's really close together. What really stands out to me is that even though they're all really close together, as Harry mentioned earlier, all within a one-mile radius, Mary Ann Nichols is sort of an outlier among the cluster of the rest. Mm-hmm. I would say that, but each there, – there are three – I want you to picture an old-timey London map. Um, and there's side streets, there's little alleys and, 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 and buildings uh, askew everywhere and some in tidy little neat rows. There are several larger roads, Whitechapel Road, uh, Commercial Road – Each of these dots, even though they are separate from each other, are remarkably close to major roadways. Marianne Nichols is a block away from Whitechapel Road. Elizabeth Stride, another block from Commercial Road there. Mary Jane Kelly is right on the middle of Commercial Street. Catherine Eddowes is again right on Whitechapel Road. Andy Chapman, to me, is the biggest outlier because she's exactly one and a half blocks away from a major street. They're all within remarkably close proximity to major roadways where a killer could presumably put his hands in his pockets and walk not along side streets and back alleys, but walk right on the sidewalk with all the good and God-fearing of Whitechapel. It is so clear, based on the way we described this, which one of the two of us covers true crime. Me or Harry? <laughs> Me. Lots close together, one farther away. Harry, picture in your mind. Also, let me explain how killers work. Oh, that was awesome. That was so Thank insightful. You. The other thing that stands out, too, is would, would have been um, the, the Night Stalker. The Night Stalker is the one that this 100% reminds me of. Brutal, mm-hmm. senseless killings, attacking the face, attacking the body, and then hopping on the highway, hopping on the roadway, and either A, finding someone else to brutalize that same night – Or like a shark just moving and walking, moving and walking from place to place within a closely sort of knit community here. L.A. at the time is going to be much larger because of highways and roadways making it larger. But Jack reminds me of this. This this would have been his whole world. And I I would be stunned if he didn't live in Whitechapel. Absolutely floored. Night Stalker is actually an applicable name for him, too. He is that for this community. The map that we're looking at was printed in 1882. 
So it is a map that someone living at this time would reasonably have. The thing that interests me is the distance between Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, Mm -hmm. which is not incredibly far, but to cover that distance and then have the victims found so quickly shows how aggressively and quickly Jack the Ripper was behaving. Mm-hmm. Either that or he's pulling a full Mitt Romney with binders full of women. Um, <laughs> he he very well could have had his eye on Catherine Eddowes at a different time mm-hmm. and was like, very well, true. aboard that mission, a walk – Brisk walk, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten and a half blocks from commercial to Whitechapel, Whitechapel to Catherine's house on Mitre Square. Well, everyone, we are going to leave you here for this first episode. We really wanted to give everyone as clear a picture as we possibly could of Jack the Ripper's victims and the time that they were all living in before we dove into the hunt and the possible suspects of Jack the Ripper himself. If we spent all this time creating the temple to Jack the Myth, we would be just as bad as Jack the Myth. It is vital that the most important people in the story are the victims. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I'll call myself out on the table here. Uh, it is it is because of, of Tracy and Rowan adding the you know more of the research regarding the victims that we were able to go so deep into them. So even somebody like me who talks about them all the time – can still get lost in the sauce when it comes to victims and making and, and losing some of the vital perspective. Um, so if you're wondering, man, I really got to know this, those victims, that was really jo- a job well done. That was these two. Absolutely killing it, by the way. Well, thank you. Yeah, first of all, thank you. I think it really highlights the difference in what we, we do when we tell stories. Rowan and I tell stories about people and we try to tell the untold stories and you're, you know, your job is to tell the story of the murders and to tell the true crime. And so then you can see that in where where we put our efforts in. It's true. It makes for an interesting crossover. When Tracy and I first sat down to talk about this episode, I was absolutely adamant that we explore what Whitechapel and London at the time looked like and how the media influenced it. And Tracy was adamant that we find as much information as we possibly could about these women. And neither of us even thought to really touch on the information about Jack ourselves because we were calling in an expert. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, expert heavy air quotes. Again, for the listening audience, you can just hear him swishing an expert. (laughs) But you are verified on Twitch, so I'm going to keep that title and <laughs> yeah you have to bear that burden <laughs> oh no crazy would you give everybody a little sneak peek of what they're going to hear in the next episode mm-hmm. so part two is going to be out next week where we'll explore the hunt for jack the ripper we'll dive into the suspects read the infamous ripper letters and explore why this story is so famous even today Harry, we do something at the end of every episode, and I think that it is particularly applicable in this one. We ask each other to tell something good. We can decompress from our stories, and I'll buy you a second by saying, Tracy, tell me something good. All right. 
my something good this week is a book that I started reading called This Is Your Brain on Food by Uma Naidu, a nutritional psychiatrist from Harvard Medical School. It covers 10 different mental health disorders and concerns and talks about how our mental health is linked to gut health and how to create the best possible microbiome for your mental well-being, which it all sounds like kind of cuckoo nonsense, but it's really cool because this woman is both a nutritionist and a psychiatrist, so she understands the, the brain-gut link, how your mental health is connected to your physical health, and the best part is this book talks about the importance of talking to a therapist, talking to your doctor. If you need medication, get on medication. But what she does is she talks about how food can also help with that. And she cites studies that show how your gut microbiome can directly affect your mental health. So it's not only a science book, it also has recipes. I trust your recommendation because normally books that fit into this genre are like, don't take modern medicine. F- fix your mental health with turmeric and turmeric alone. I know. <laughs> which drives, and it drives me, nuts. me up the wall. And the fact yeah. that you are choosing to read this book over an enemies to lovers fantasy novel is a testament to its I mean, goodness. It's a long side one, but still. Yeah, <laughs> I <laughs> I have it next to my bed. I have the book Cersei that Rowan gave me. And um, this book next to my bed with highlighters and pens so I could take notes. And it's really cool. In the, in the chapter on anxiety, she talks about how anxiety is one of the only conditions where when you fix the chemicals in the brain, it does not fix the corresponding microbiome. So the Rude. corresponding bacteria in your gut. Right? Harry, can you answer honestly? Look me in the eyes. Are you someone that writes and highlights in books, or do you treat books like sacred texts that cannot be dog-eared or touched or written in? So I um, write and take notes in my uh, Habanichi A6 uh, little, Ooh, little promo. I, you have one? Oh, <laughs> of everybody, that's like a cult. I do. It is. Praise be Habanichi. Habanichi. Mm, <laughs> <laughs> Of course, yeah, no, I, I take notes on that um, specifically because I'm trying to get better at using a planner. Um, note, my books are, 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 are sacred boys. And um, if I really want to take notes and you, you know, actually a true, you know what, I'll be, I'll be honest and real. I get a lot of Kindle books and I just Beyblade them up, rip them up, uh, turn them into PDFs that I can highlight and copy and paste at will and mm. just – create my own little my own little lookbook for information if i need to so okay yeah that works drm destructive club let's go (laughs) (laughs) all right rowan it's your turn tell me something good my something good this week it's kind of silly uh tracy will remember from when we were in school we were a part of a group of people who really loved musicals oh yeah we were those kids you know the kind of kids that wore vests and scarves in summer. <laughs> you know those kids. Are, are we are we berets? Or are we not? Are we no berets? No, we were never berets, <sighs> but uh, they just weren't in fashion when we were in the in the height of theater kid nerdiness. We say we were never berets, but to my friend's senior prom, I wore a actual vintage 1920s flapper dress and a vintage beret. So, <laughs> oops. Mm, beret and play. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> So lately, I've been frustrated with my music choices, I've been a little bummed, and so I just let Spotify give me a shuffle of musicals, and it is delightful. 
to bop around my room singing full voice to musicals mm-hmm. that I love. And I'm just basking in that theater nerdiness right now. And it is so fun. It's so satisfying. <laughs> what are your musicals of choice right now? Well, obviously Wicked, uh, okay. because, you know, that that misunderstood which story was always going to be right. Always my, a, uh, your vibe. My babe. I love the last five years. Oh, I love the last five years. I love, of course, I love Spring Awakening, which Tracy put on the best mix CD I have ever been given without telling me that that music was from a musical. So I listened to the entire album just thinking it was a cool concept album. What? (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's very cool. If you've never listened to the music for it, it's supposed to feel kind of like a, a rock show, but set in... Germany in the early 1900s. Uh, it's very, yeah. it's very dark musical, but it's very good. And the, um, there is a deaf production of it actually. Oh wow, oh. that's excellent. So they have hearing and deaf actors signing alongside all the singing in the show. Oh, that is. And it's really the Deaf cool. West production. We're gonna rock out to Hamilton, and we're gonna rock out to Dear Evan Hansen. All of it. We're doing it. Um, and that's that's my cheer up, Chuck vibe of the day, the week, the month the year (laughs) forever Mm, stretching it out (laughs) (laughs) harry are you ready i'm ready tell me something good sure so so there's something good um i've been working on on the twitch stream and getting the tv essentially it's a tv production uh i've been working on Mm -hmm. for two and a half years and finally finally um our big enough a uh, big enough boy level that we get to be partners. Um, so I get a cool check mark. I got a hamster <laughs> emote I made. They approved <laughs> the hamster <laughs> emote within like two minutes. I'm <gasps> loving it. Um, I still can't believe it. I've been chasing this stupid goal for like two and a half years. Um, so now we're building a new goal. And I'm very, I, we're taking a day or two to kind of enjoy and revel and 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 you know meeting something and accomplishing something mm-hmm. i never thought we'd do and then it's back to the grind Rise congratulations grind. <laughs> i think what was really cool that you did is you brought your audience along that journey so you were really transparent about your trials uh, to become a partner so i can say from experience as someone who watches your show when you did your stream as a twitch partner the chat was losing their minds. They were so excited for you, and it was so satisfying to see. You have such a wonderful community. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it. I. That's I guess the one thing is I'll never say it's like it's my community. It's a community that's formed I guess around. I know it sounds like super mm-hmm. dumb, but like I always feel really uncomfortable being like, oh, it's my community, all this and that. And like right. they're just cool people that I've happened to find. They keep coming <laughs> back. Like I don't know what to do. It's so important, Mm -hmm. though, because I feel very lucky because working with you and a lot of the Pixel Circus people and, you know, the more people I meet, everyone is attracting such good people because you are a good people. And I think the Internet at its worst can be dark and scary and mean. And now I get to be in this corner of the Internet where people are supportive and excited for each other and like Tracy said, getting to see that transparently, it is like giggly. It's bubbly. It's it's mm-hmm. just flat out awesome. 
<laughs> I feel really bad too because I we we the day we found out I had a guest and I didn't want to make it all about me because I had the guest on. So I was like, okay, we can celebrate for five minutes and then I'll give you a par- a proper partner celebration later. So this <laughs> week, which will be like I don't know however many weeks from now when the folks are listening to it, we're doing a um. I, the, the only time I ever got banned was for talking about – was for watching the videos of the, the guy who stalked Bjork. He made an extensive 25-hour no. video log um, <gasps> of, of basically his plans to build a bomb and all this stuff. It doesn't succeed oh and it ends in his demise. But it's this fascinating, like, completely uncut look at a mind just – so alien from anything I've ever experienced. And I got banned for showing it because it has a lot of nudity. Um, but I promised in a fit of frustration many moons ago that son of a biscuit, if we ever get partner, I'm revisiting this topic <gasps> and I'm showing the video and I'm going to pay to have all the wieners and the butts edited out. And so now <sighs> we've done it and that's going to be this coming Wednesday. <laughs> that's so exciting. So by the time everyone's hearing this, it happened in the past. So I'm so glad you guys all had such a good time. Wasn't it fun? It was amazing. Wasn't it disturbing? Wasn't it exciting to be uh, passionate for Harry and at the same time horrified by this <laughs> stalker i'm so so glad if you want to relive that feeling you know just relive that experience where where uh can they watch the vod sure so it's so it's twitch.tv it's like twitch like you know a nervous twitch um twitch.tv forward slash the harry horror show i am going to test live in the middle of this recording if I really am foolproof Google proof, um, the <laughs> Harry Horror Show. If I type it into Google, it does actually take you to my Twitter, which is is it's, it should be easy enough to find me from there. So that actually does work. I it'll be on Twitch.tv, but you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram as well, and apparently on Google. We made the first of the first result from that very specific phrase. <laughs> He's a real fancy Google boy. Harry, thank mm-hmm. you so much for joining us for this episode and next episode. Thank mm-hmm. you for the privilege of having me. I've it has been. <laughs> I, I work with a lot of guests, um, and I have to be the lead boy. Um, and it was. I, I felt supported. I felt prepared. I felt like I had all the information I need because uh, you both just set the table so brilliantly. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Times a thousand. For being such gracious hosts and for being so put together, damn it, it's really refreshing. <laughs> Ron and I love a spreadsheet. It's true. We do. And truly, thank you for coming on our podcast. But more importantly, thank you for saying that I'm the smartest person you know. The smartest human <laughs> being, period. Let's go. Rowan for Megamind 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Megamind is the superior film to uh, Despicable Me. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we will see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. 
If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.